right, welcome back to episode four. Today we're going to be discussing the gardening, soil, things to forage while waiting on uh, produce and what is in season. The fun thing about this episode is I actually, Ariel and I actually had, and Stephanie, had a principle made for this, a free principle that will give you a list of all the things you can forage during each like season. And we actually, with that list, we combined the list of all the fruits and vegetables in season. So I have that and um, all you have to do is ask for it and we'll we'll tell you where to find it. So um, Ariel is kind of the garden queen in my <laughs> opinion. So um, we're gonna talk about some soil issues and I'm just gonna start with what happened with our garden this past year. So we moved here to, um, to Missouri, two years ago and we've always had fairly successful gardens where we lived in Michigan and this time we decided we cleared our trees out because we needed the trees cleared out and we decided just to plant the garden. The good news is the plants did great when we were starting them. Bad news is we had this massive garden that did nothing with hundreds of plants in it and we found out it was our soil. So how we found that out is someone recommended we go to the university extension office near us, which I highly recommend if you're just starting a garden and it's a new place, save yourself hundreds of dollars, hundreds of hours of time, yes, sweat, blood, and tears, and just go to your university extension office or wherever you can get your soil tested and get it tested and see what your ground needs. Um, in our case, we had to add some... Um, what is that white lime. lime? Yes, which is very cheap. We added some, um, he added a couple other things, but I, we did add manure, chicken and cow. We actually have our cow in there this year. Um, but Ariel, if someone has some terrible soil, what are some of the best ways that they can start rebuilding their soil? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna piggyback on that real quick because that's one of my questions too, but on like, give us, things that you can buy, but also if there's anything household-wise that you can amend your soil with. That was one of my questions too. So if there's something that you might have yeah. that you can always just be dumping like whey and things like that. Well, yeah, good point. Well, there's a lot of things you can put on your soil. Um, but if somebody's, so it doesn't matter whether you're a new gardener or an old gardener, you need to know your soil. Um, the best thing you could do is to go get that soil test from your local extension. You can get it from there, but you can also find it from a local conservancy. State colleges may offer it, or there are third-party sources that you can Google and send soil into. Um, this year, our farm is using Midwest Laboratories, but you use who you want to use. You in order, so it wouldn't just be taking soil from your garden, right? You would want to know soil from all over your property and maybe get an amalgamation of what your soil is doing overall. Um, if you're considering working with a piece of ground, you need to know what the compounds are that make it up. You can't play the guessing game. You're going to take years figuring out what works and what doesn't work in that area, as opposed to just going and getting your soil test done. And what that looks like is it's going to give you your NPK. That's your nitrogen, your phosphorus, and your potassium. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what those things are. But they can also give you a more fuller um, evaluation by telling you, uh, you know, what your mycorrhizal levels are at, 
what microbes are in your level, um, in your organic matter. So finding out all that stuff. And then can you amend your soil with things you already have at home? Absolutely. And one of the best things you can do is to sustainably resource your inputs. So one of the best things you can start with if you haven't already is collecting your family's table scraps and create a compost or a a worm system. And a lot of people are onto this, onto the composting game. However, they're still taking years to get to where they need to be. Most American households produce at least 50 pounds of food scraps per week. Now, if you're the kind of person that likes to eat all your leftovers or you give it to the chickens, you're not going to have a lot left over for your compost, but every little bit does count. And then the next thing that I see people invariably doing wrong, which there's no shame in this because you just don't know. And if you don't know, you don't know, um, is that they're not taking the proper steps with their compost. So compost needs aeration. You need to be turning it. You can't just dump your food scraps in a pile and expect it to turn into dirt. You need to keep moving it. And, and like, we have a fork system on our tractor and it just goes into the big pile and we just lift it and it kind of dumps back down. But if you've got a broad fork and you can get in there with your hand, or some people have the big tumblers that they use for compost, that's great too. Um, And then you need to be adding green material, which is grass clippings or plant matter from weeds from your forest, if you have a lot or any green material like that. And then you need brown material. So those are the leaves that you collect in the fall. Um, It could be um, wood chips. You know, those are your brown materials. So you need different components that make up. You can't just throw manure in there and expect you to be fine. You need a well-balanced system within your composting system. That's super helpful. I guess that also would lead to the next question. Like say someone has been gardening for a while. I mean, of course, dead plants and no growth is a good sign. But <laughs> what are some tips for knowing when your garden soil needs help? Mm-hmm. Mineral deficiencies or MPK deficiencies show, so your your soil will show you that your plant is having a problem and you can see it. That's the yellowing in the leaves, the browning in the leaves, that's poor growth rate. Like maybe it's not growing. It, like your neighbor's tomatoes are doing great, but yours are stunted somehow. The growth isn't happening. Or maybe you have dying plants or an overabundance of pests. Maybe the potato beetle came in really strong. Why did they come in so strong? Usually it goes back to the soil, which is why your pH is so important. So pH measures how hydrogen moves within the soil, which is important for plant health. Um, They have measuring tools for this at Home Depot, which I don't recommend. You can get a pool test kit the pH strips. I think you guys might have done those in your science classes with your kids. Like you just make, you take some dirt from your garden and you put it in water and you make a slurry and you stick the test strip in there and you test it and it will tell you. So where you want to be is seven. Seven is neutral. Good water should be at seven. And here's an interesting fact. Blood is at 7.4. I found that interesting. It's the closest thing to an absolute neutral. But things like bleach and baking soda, they go up in number, which makes them more basic, which you'd think the base should be at the bottom, but basic is actually at the top number. That's more alkaline, while lower numbers are acidic, like your coffee and your lemon juice. And you've seen people amending with coffee grounds before, I'm sure. Way at the bottom is like 
battery acid. That's like super acidic. Don't put that on your plants. Um, so your soils for to to grow pretty much any plant, but definitely most vegetables, you want to be between six and a half and seven and a half pH. Um, not all plants need that in order to grow. And certainly you can still grow plants that are outside their optimal growth pH range, but you just won't see the benefits of the fruit, right? You're not going to see like, oh my goodness, this tomato plant is doing just fabulous when it's really at a four pH. So you're just not going to see that. Um, likely 90% of plants grow best at six and a half to seven and a half. So a good rule in your mind to go with this is the more clay that you have in your soil, the higher the alkaline is, the higher in the number of the pH scale is. So you need to bring that down. And the more sand you have in your soil or rock, the lower your pH scale, meaning it's acidic. And that's just a general rule of thumb. Everybody's soil is going to be different. Even the soil on your own piece of land, if you've got two acres, at this end of your acre to the other end is going to be different. So it's good to take mm -hmm. multiple test sites. And really, you if you're amending your soil, you should be taking tests every couple years because you're amending it it's changing continue to bring in those tests so that you can see what you're doing um so a high acid plant is going to be four to five on the ph scale really that's like azaleas and hydrangeas which aren't even edibles but blueberries thrive in acidic soil so try it like say you live around an area and you can see you've got eyes that there are pine trees everywhere you don't know what kind they are but you see the needles on the ground the odds are if you're surrounded by a bunch of pine trees you're going to have acidic soil so things aren't gonna you can't expect all of your vegetables to grow great around acidic soil but you know what will blueberries blueberries will love it so grow what will grow well in your area if you've got it before trying to amend your soil if you don't have the money to do that if it's going to take time to build up a compost and add topsoil and do all that stuff work with what you got you know one of the things that i have learned just in reading a book so maybe you can touch a little bit on this is that it's not necessarily about i mean really poor soil is obviously your plants aren't going to survive and they're not going to thrive but it also goes all the way to the fruit that your plant produces so maybe you have decent soil and your plants are doing okay but are you getting the full nutrition in that fruit or that vegetable or whatever it is that's coming off of it and does that does your soil relate to that and getting a very nutritious nutritiously dense food yeah yeah your soil health is what puts the nutrients into your food uh, your your plant is going to make the chemical compounds and nutrients that a plant does but they're going to be less so and I think you're going to find that in most chain grocery stores these days, then they, they've been testing the levels of nutrients in them and they're super low, which means we're not getting the nutrients that we need unless you are actively participating in your market gardens and supporting people that you know are feeding their soil. But even then we're playing catch up after years of bad, I'm going to say bad farming habits, but they didn't know maybe some of them did but you know now we know if you erode the soil so long and you don't keep putting top matter back on you're gonna 
you're going to lose nutrients. So that's where we're at right yeah. now. We have to continually do this uphill battle to put nutrients into our food so that we can finally absorb them into our bodies. So. Yeah, I just realized as a new gardener too, like even, even the more seasoned gardeners have issues. Like we've gardened for years. My husband has over 30 years of gardening experience yeah. and we still had a dud of a garden this year. Yeah. So just realizing that every year it can be different and you're not a terrible gardener. If you just started out and nothing came up and looked horrible, just work with your soil. And sometimes you'll learn that you garden differently than your favorite gardener because it works for you. So mm-hmm. you're just realizing that, but also, um, so for those who are starting new gardens or whatever, they can be a seasoned gardener. What soil do you recommend starting your seeds in? Okay. So I've done this in all the wrong ways that you could ever do starting seed <laughs> soil. Uh, Cause way back I was like, I don't need to buy box store soil mixes. I'm going to make my own. So, you know, you try to plant into straight compost or straight manure, or you just try to dig up dirt and plant seeds in it in a tray. And uh, they don't work out the way you think they would. So um, what I've learned is that germination is critical to seed starting. You need, that's the goal, right? You want your seeds to germinate. That's kind of the goal. It's not like you're going to grow them in a, in a little cell like this. You're just trying to get them to sprout. To allow for proper germination, you need drainage. If you're thinking about planting seeds into a pure compost mix, don't do it. It holds all the water because it contains a lot of carbon. So, but I also don't recommend going out and buying a potting mix from the store. Potting mix is not seed starting mix. Potting mix is for when you're taking that little seed that's already germinated and you're putting it into its final home pot. It's going to live there for months and months and months. It has extra things in it that hold water. So if you're doing that for your seed starting, it's just going to retain water and you could end up drowning your seeds. But what we use and what we've come to love is a soilless mixture. And so the mixture that we have, I think it's called a Promix. Yeah, it's Promix soilless mixture. It's got no soil, which some people are like, how can you grow in no soil? Well, you need drainage. You don't necessarily need dirt to do it. It's composed of um, peat moss, perlite, which is naturally forming in silica rock, vermiculite, which is a mined earth mineral, coconut core, ground limestone, and mycorrhizal inoculant. That's a mouthful. Um, Sometimes we have to manually screen it. Other times there won't be enough vermiculite for drainage. And if you ever find that your seed starting mix is starting to mold or grow a green tuft, that means there's not enough drainage. Add some vermiculite, add some perlite, um, if you have sand around, that's a natural good one that you can add in there. Here's the other thing I wanted to mention. You do not need to fertilize your seed starts. They're only supposed to be in your tray for maybe a month or two. If you go beyond that, then you can fertilize. So maybe you have something that you started in Jan- end of January, February, that's going to take a long time. Maybe you're going to want to fertilize it. But by and large, when you transplant those seeds out into the garden, that's when you fertilize. So you don't need to worry about fertilizing until then. But that's my recommendation for um, seed starting mix. I know there's quite a few people on YouTube that you can follow that have um, mixes that they like and that they put together. 
I, I highly recommend going with what you got around you and trying to weigh your odds with prices and everything. So because starting seeds is just basically you're just trying to get them to sprout. Right. And like you said, you don't know, like when I'm sprouting and this is different, but when I'm sprouting seeds to eat, I don't even have to have any of the, the dirt. It's just water, water, glass jar, and it does its happy things. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense to mm -hmm. just use it use and we did use the pro mix. Was it last year when I and all of my seedlings were like happy so happy happy mm -hmm. and my garden was a hater yeah so. but what about um some must rotational planting that you should that will benefit our soil so how do you change out your plants and what follows what um each year to keep your soil healthy and beneficial so do your due diligence in research develop okay. a cover cropping plan until, uh, so if you have a section of your garden that you're not using, cover crop it, cover crop it right away and let that be and work on the smaller section. And, and this is, again, if you have a larger garden, if you're already established in a garden and you're rotating, the things to look out for are never plant nightshades after another nightshade. So nightshades are your tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and peppers they share the same bugs and the same diseases. You do not want to plant peppers where you've planted tomatoes. Instead, follow them up with a brassica, which is your cauliflower, broccoli, pak choy, mustard, collards, radishes. Um, <laughs> the, idea of, the idea of rotational grazing uh, is to prevent bugs and soil-borne diseases from infiltrating the crops that they would be more susceptible if they stayed in the same place over and over. Um, so it's it's one of those things where the prevention is worth a pound of cure. I don't know if you've heard that saying, but not all plants are like this. So for example, lettuce doesn't necessarily need to be rotated. It can stay in the same place year after year without soil issues. Now, bugs are a different story. You, you may have to cover them with a, a shade cloth or something and try to keep the bugs off, but overall, they don't seem to have the same soil issues that the other ones do. I do have a spreadsheet that I'm going to make for our podcast, so it'll be ready by the time this goes live, of the rotation that you can have. Um, so like knowing what to plant after potatoes, knowing what to plant after eggplant, knowing just so that you can see these are your options. Here's a list of things that you can plant after that. So that when you have your map of your garden laid out, which if you if you're not mapping your garden, you should you need to be. You should. <laughs> um so that way you can plan it year to year and you can have it rotating. But the key to rotational grazing, I'd say, is observation, stress, drought, bugs, disease move things accordingly far enough away that the mycorrhizal network will not spread and transport to the same ground. So if you move potatoes that have blight, um, which is a fungus, you shouldn't plan on planting potatoes in the same area or even 10 feet in that area for the next four years, four years. Um, instead, you should plant mustard because mustard as a cover crop has been shown to reduce harmful fungus and bacteria in the soil 
And it's actually been shown to fumigate the soil of pests and disease, which is fantastic that a plant can do that. So yeah. rotational, yeah. go ahead. So last year we had a really terrible year of drought and bugs. I mean, bugs I'd never seen before in my garden happened last year and it was really frustrating. Um, and everything that we had, um, squash bugs took over. I never even got one zucchini, one, one pumpkin, one, anything. I mean, it moved to my melons. I, I think I got one melon. Um, I, it wasn't a complete flop, but it was very, very rough. I had, um, Japanese beetles. I had what are those little bugs that attack potatoes? Um, potato beetles by the hundreds. Are they orange? They were. They had orange stripes on it and black. The potato beetle, yeah. The is that what they are? The potato beetle. Yeah. The hundreds. I mean, one night I was out there spraying neem oil for a different pest, and I came the next morning, and there were hundreds everywhere, and I, they came overnight. And it's like the death, like Egypt. It it really was. I, I mean, I had locusts. I'm not kidding. She's like, what did I do? What did I do? They were everywhere, everywhere. And as it is, you know, I've had some strawberries not come back and this year. So I know they really got them. I had some, but yeah. I had a thriving strawberry crop last year, which makes me sad. Yeah. They were eating my green beans. I planted my green beans four times. And when I say planted green beans, I planted like 32 seeds each time. Yeah. Whole bags. Yeah. And I think by the end of the summer, before our frost hit, I got two plants that actually survived out of probably over a hundred seeds wow. and got a handful of green beans to eat fresh for dinner one night. But Be they, they were the best green beans. They were, they were so said. delicious, <laughs> but every time they sprouted up, they'd get their second set of leaves and the grasshoppers would come and they would eat the tops of it completely off. Yeah. It was, it was awful. All of this to say I'm kind of have a little bit of PTSD over it. I'm nervous that all of those are going to have overwinterized and they're going to come back this year. And I have a jungle in my schoolroom right now of plants because I don't have a greenhouse that I've been tending to for months and I don't want the same thing to happen. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you can do? I mean, I, I, we, a lot of people, everyone we talked to had bug problems last year, bugs they hadn't seen in years. Drought, it, the drought. And I think that was yeah. a huge problem last year. But is there something that people can be doing now that, that squash being a big one, um, those are always an issue. And I feel like the first year they came, they came, I got things before they completely took over, even though I was doing the diatomaceous earth and neem oil and doing all the things it, it, be, they did end up taking over it just kind of masked them to let me get enough zucchini and enough pumpkins and I was able to get them off the vines before they took the plants and they finished ripening my house but this last year I mean the plants never even got anything on them before they just took them out I mean barely anything is there something I can be doing did they overwinterize is that something you know that I can I just don't want it to happen again <laughs> I need help you're not gonna like my answer oh no you're always gonna have bugs they're, well, and I do know that. <laughs> right. And they're always going to be in the soil. Um, aside from heavily chemicaling your soil, which you don't want to do. Right. Um, so with, and each bug is different. I'm not personally, I'm not a huge fan anymore of neem oil. I haven't seen it work large scale the way that it's reported to have. And then yeah. it's, it's controversial at best now. Now there's new evidence out about neem oil that's controversial at best as far as it pertains to environment care. Um, with 
things like the potato beetle, the only thing that would beat that for us was the, um, we would go out with a five gallon bucket of soapy water and we would get there before they got to the beetle stage. So when they're in the egg stage, you have to flip over the leaves of the potatoes and you have to look for the orange egg sacs. And we have, uh, we had 400 foot rows of potatoes to go through. We're out there for a while during that season when the eggs are on and you're, you just have to be diligent. And then you have to be diligent again when the bugs come on and you got to go out and you got to find them and you got to pick them off. So you're Did saying you... just soapy water. Soapy water. So I did soapy water with a splash of neem oil, which was what you're not spraying. You're not spraying the plant with it. You're going out there with a bucket and you're physically taking the bugs off of the plant and you're putting it into the water just beside you. So it's, it's manual labor that I'm talking about. There are, there is an organic um, spray that we have used from time to time when things got really bad, when the diatomaceous earth wouldn't work anymore. And I'll, have to put that in the show notes because I can't remember what it's called, but it worked really well for us too. Squash okay. bugs and a lot of other bugs respond really well to companion planting. And I can't say enough good things about finding the right companion plants. So, and okay. even it, this goes from small bug pests all the way up to big pests, rabbits and deer. So mm -hmm. we have a patch of blueberries that we planted and to keep the deer pressure off, we planted kale and radishes around them which isn't a common thing, but we experimented with that on our hobby farm. And what we found was that everything will eat the radishes and the kale. They won't even touch the blueberries. They won't even touch the regular plant because they'd rather have the things that are around it. And it's the same way when you plant herbs mixed in. So like people say marigolds are great. They say basil's great for tomatoes. And um, I mean, there's so many herbs that you could plant around them, but if you're, it depends on what kind of gardener you are. Are you a large scale farmer? gardener who's trying to feed a market garden and more than just one family or are you just or do you have five boxes and you're trying to grow just this much I would say companion plant either way but you it's it's the mapping system right it's you got to think about how your layout is so I would like to lead into this question I kind of jotted this down after her last question is um what are your recommendations for someone who's just starting to map out their garden like if this like They've never mapped out a garden before. And what are some tips that you can share? Add flowers. We're making you do one. Yeah. Add flowers. Yeah. Add flowers. Make it pretty. <laughs> make, it, make it pretty. Make it your own. Things are going to, don't be nice. I have to agree with that. Last year was the first year I did flowers. And with all the bug problems, I am so thankful I had flowers because yeah. it was so pretty. They ate those too. Yeah. They did but eat they those too. But they're pretty while they were there and it made me my heart happy. Yeah. And then they ate them. But that was okay. So some people, they use programs. Some people are going to use the grid paper. Mm -hmm. Like, what are just some tips that you make it not for, you know, not done well enough besides add flowers. Yeah, besides add flowers. Practice makes perfect. When you're mapping out your garden, it's going to be, it's probably going to be different every year. I won't say that as a fact because it could be the same. You might be that kind of person that loves the layout the first time around. We've tried uh, garden Gardener's Almanac was a really thorough one you have to pay for, but it, it grids out and lets you drop in plants and tells you exactly the radius of each plant and how many you can fit in the row, which was just fantastic it was really specific so if you have a certain amount of space and you have no idea how many broccoli plants fit in 20 square feet well this program would know but there's a lot of other 
calculations on the web and we'll put those down below too um, so that people can see what the where they can find resources for how to map. Um, it may seem overwhelming, but you just have to draw. And the biggest and most helpful advice I've ever gotten was just sit outside and look at it. Look at the space that you're working with and just try to envision what you think it might look like and try to be creative with it because a mundane garden, well, it needs to be functional, right? So maybe so maybe all the circular paths and all the triangles in your garden might be a little difficult to deal with. So maybe start out with some straight rows, <laughs> but yeah. really have they fun. They don't have to all go the same direction. Yeah, right. yep. they can go they all the same direction. They don't. And and you do not need to plant all the things. If, if your goal, that's it. Establish what your goal is in the garden. Is your goal to feed your family for the year? That's a big undertaking. And you've got a lot to plan out. If you're only trying to eat in the season, which so many gardeners are just trying to grow a few plants just to get the fresh out of the summer, you know, they're not trying to grow for the full year. Well, then your gardening is going to look a lot different than somebody else's. So I think you're like the whole map, there's some people like for us, we're always just that sit down, get a clean sheet of paper, stare at the garden and kind of like put our little loop-de-doos everywhere. Well, yeah, that's okay. what we do. That's what I do. But yeah, that's more my, my husband does it. He, yeah. he kind of tells what or what not to do. However, I know people that are like really into, and I've seen some of their yeah. like in product and I'm like, dude, like I would pay you to do that for me <laughs> to just so I could have it framed. It looks so good. Mm -hmm. So I know we're going to have people on both ends of the spectrum wanting to just get a plain piece of paper and put yeah. it on. And then some people, I think the program you mentioned would be a great one to mention down below. Yeah. Um, for people that want to be more detailed and, and do don't want to take the time to go out and measure everything. Cause like, I mean, we had to do that with that paper. Yeah. We had to go out and measure, actually physically measure everything. Yeah. 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 So yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's actually great to know that those kind of programs are out there for mm -hmm. those who want that. One of the things that was a big piece of advice I got early on was as a brand new gardener, if you've never done this before to start small and then grow every year with it, that, um, it's so easy to be like, I want to do this and I want to grow food for my family. And then you plant everything you can think of <laughs> at a large scale and really are still in the learning process. And you, it's all just a big flop because it's a lot of work and you don't realize the work that goes into it and till you're in it. And so starting small and then growing each year is important I mean if you're a first-time gardener I would say you there you may be different than me but I would probably vouch to say growing food for a whole year for your family is probably not the first place to start mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah um start with a couple tomato plants because not only can you might be an avid gardener and you can grow all of those things and you can keep up with it and you know how to do it but then what do you do once you harvest it and if you don't know that step of it yet it, they go hand in hand. And so to, um, to not get yourself overwhelmed because gardening can be overwhelming. And I think it's such a peaceful thing to do when it's done. The right way. Yeah. 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 I, I agree with that. We've picked your brain a lot today, Ariel, but it, it's been very good because like, I know there's so many people trying to go back and trying to like start their own little gardens and trying to be a little bit more self-sufficient self and just, you know, it's actually kind of cool. So I know that that is going to like, I personally know a lot of people who are 
either in their second or third year of gardening and they're just trying to get their way around. So it's really important to talk about the soil because it's very discouraging yeah. when as a new gardener, even as a seasoned gardener, like our entire garden was a flop and that was very discouraging after all the hours we put into it. So just knowing soil, check your soil is such a... Well, it's the foundation. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the foundation to build anything yep. and you can't do anything without a foundation. Yeah. I was going to ask because everybody right now, at least we're getting ready for garden season. We're amending our soils and we're getting garden beds ready. But during that time, we're probably, I don't know about you girls, but I'm eating out of my larder and trying to finish off the stuff that I put up last year. But right now there's a lot of good foraged goods out there. What are some of your family's favorite foraged edibles that, at least in your area, that you guys love? And then do you have any recipes that are just like spot on that you like to share? My kids are actually, so we have a ton of black raspberries around our thing, but they're not, they're not, they're not due yet. They're still in the process. Mm -hmm. However, this time of year is when the dandelions come up. Mm -hmm. That is my kids. Like they will collect so many of those and they will make, as long as there's dandelions growing, they have dandelion tea, Mm -hmm. which is also extremely good for you. Like if, if you've ever looked at the benefits of dandelions, honestly, we have mullein growing. So we've done mullein tea. Nice. Uh, my, a lot of my herbs are starting to spring up. So we'll, you know, parsley tea, you can do that. We have peppermint starting to come in. Lemon, my lemon um, balm is coming in. Lemon balm is actually really good. It's very calming plant. Mm-hmm. And so that's like in full bloom right now. Yeah. So I, and I know that's not necessarily foraging, but those are herbs that are coming up that mm-hmm. have been planted mm-hmm. and are going to continue to come back every year. So that's kind of the extent of what we're doing right now. Our soil is still all like torn up from all the logging we had done last year. So I actually do look forward to seeing what else we get in that I don't have in right now because of all the things we did in the soil. So we, I don't do a lot of foraging. That is an area that I would absolutely love to learn more. I know. I'm surprised. I know of all the things I do, that's one area that I am super am interested in and want to learn more but I don't do a lot dandelion is the one that I love and it I is think so good dandelion to, jelly that's yes I think this needs to be a full podcast to yeah. talk about foraging like because I think there's a lot of people with interest in it where yes. I didn't grow up that way I have no idea where to start and it is almost intimidating and scary yes worse than a garden you know what you're putting in your garden you know what you're planting and what products you're yes. going to get I don't want to kill my family. <laughs> so, you know, it's, think, it's intimidating. I think and you're scary. right. I think it's a fear. And I think maybe what we can do is like in the next couple episodes, we will do a foraging one for summer. Yeah. And then when we do our fall episodes, we will have a foraging one for fall. And we'll yeah. talk about different plants that could be growing around you, different zones you can mm-hmm. look in. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, that principle will be available yeah. and we'll just, I know Ariel is a foraging girl. She is that person. And so it. we can talk about just things not to be afraid of. And then there is some plants, like I think there's a plant called Queen Anne's Lace and then one that almost looks identical yeah. that can literally kill an army so or poison an army. So we kind of need to differentiate. Queen, yeah. Queen Anne always has hairy legs. That's how you remember Queen Anne because the stem will have these little pinprick hairs on them. And so that's Queen Anne. Yes. And Queen Anne is good or not good? Queen, Queen Anne is good. The other one okay. is good. It's bad. Okay. So like that's, 
that let's talk about that in the next like I think it'll probably be episode eight or nine we'll talk about what you can forage in the summer Mm -hmm. why you're waiting for your garden to grow and why you're waiting for things to come in and can you make teas with them like Mm-hmm. dandelion jam I have heard people say they me too I don't have a recipe but I that is one on my list and I need to go get my dandelions yes. like now because I don't I'm my window is closing yes <laughs> yes so you guys already have dandelions oh yeah, yeah. they're uh-huh. everywhere and they're big and they're yellow I mean they just opened probably I would say I started noticing on the end of last week yeah this week because we've gotten such good weather and sunshine they yeah. are happy right yeah. now yeah yeah Kids are been, yeah. have been bringing those in. And- you don't even have daffodils yet. You don't have daffodils yet? Not yet. Nope. They're just starting to poke up. The crocuses just started to poke up. So we're at the very, very beginning of spring. I definitely yeah, want to do one, one on that. Okay. A spring recipe is just the kids, they boil their dandelions. They they take off the stems and then they boil them for, I think, for like five minutes, add sweetener and drink away. Sometimes they've even made popsicles out of them. Ooh. I don't know why it's cool to do that, but it's just cool to dump it in and just, I mean. With the leaves and all in them. Well, what they'll do is they'll strain it. And okay. And they'll, yeah. but that would have been pretty. I, that's what I was thinking. Gosh. <laughs> We're recipe creators here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been a very fun episode. And yeah. honestly, I think when I go back and listen to it. I'm going to learn so much. I'm going to, yeah. And um, definitely getting the principles and any links we had mentioned in here we'll we will get those um posted for you guys mm-hmm. all right so that wraps up and i think we're actually going to title this we had a really good title here we're going to title this um the soil podcast Ooh, yeah. because that's what it was about the soil podcast and next week we're going to come back and talk about postpartum and hormone balance and this isn't just postpartum for right after you have a baby I know women that are four or five years out that are still trying to figure out their life Hormonal stuff. because everything's been so out of whack mm-hmm. and they've had like two or three kids within that four or five year span um, and been pregnant or nursing the whole time. So we want to cover just a whole span of time where if you're struggling, it doesn't matter how far out you are from having babies, um, you're going to have at least some resources to walk away with to be like, hey, maybe I can try this and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that ends us. Thank you so much, Ariel, for letting us pick your brains. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this episode. You've been listening to the Whole Topic Podcast. To hear more, to see behind the scenes, or to get a hold of us directly, visit our socials, Facebook and Instagram, the Whole Topic Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Andrea, visit her blog at dearmark23.com, where she talks about whole foods, whole grains, and whole living. If you'd like to hear more from Stephanie, Visit theranchershomestead.com, where she talks about simple living, gluten-free recipes, and farm life. If you'd like to see more from me, visit wildandforagecare.com, where I talk about simple living, wild recipes, and natural remedies. Thank you for listening, and God bless.